It was a normal practice for men and women to walk alone at night, all the way into the early mornings, in and out of the campus of the University of Vermont. But all of that would change one day, when a 21-year-old woman who had walked alone many times before would go missing, only to be found days later, murdered and sexually assaulted. Welcome to episode one of Fright Fest. Hi guys, and welcome back to my podcast. I'm your host, Lulu, and it's great to hear from everybody again. How is everybody doing? This week ended up great. We got so much done, you guys, and I can't wait to give you an update on the shed. I'll probably post a picture on my Instagram coming up so you guys can kind of see how it's going. Um, my children are sick. They're always sick, I swear. But they both went down for a nap, and I fought my one-year-old to go down for a nap today for the longest time, and he finally fell asleep, so here we are. If my audio sounds a little funky halfway through, it's possible that I had to record either later that night or a separate day, just because he is napping and so is my daughter, but my daughter listens to a lot more instructions and can sit in my bedroom and watch TV, whereas my son can't do that. He'll just scream and cry and I won't be able to record. So we'll try to quickly get our recording done before he wakes up. Now, as you probably heard in the opening, this is episode one of Fright Fest. Um, I know we haven't quite settled on what we're going to do every year for October, and last year we did like, you know, six sweets and those kind of things. This year I wanted to do something a little bit different because it is hard to find some things that fit in the categories that I did last year. I just decided to pick from things that happened in October. So all of these are true crime cases that happened in October. And then on our, you know, Wednesday upload, I tried to pick some more creepier things to talk about, um, just because this is Fright Fest and we are here to get spooked together and to talk about true crime that happened in October. If you guys hate it, let me know. We can change it next year, but I think this would be kind of fun to really focus on the things that happened in the month coming up to Halloween. I also have a Halloween special planned that will be posted on Halloween, which is Monday the 31st. So stay tuned for that one unless shit hits the fan and I can't get it done. As of right now, I do have a Halloween special planned and the intent is to get that done. Anyways, enough of my rambling. Um, we have a limited amount of time before my son wakes up. Let's go ahead and just talk about Michelle Gardner Quinn. Now, Michelle was born on January 28th, 1985, and was currently a 21-year-old woman who at the time was an undergraduate at the University of Vermont. Michelle was majoring in Latin American studies and environmental science at the time of her disappearance and unfortunate death. The night that authorities and the public believe the incident happened was on October 7th, 2006. That day, Michelle would wake up and get ready like usual. Michelle had a pretty busy day planned, and she planned on in the morning leaving with a group of her friends to celebrate one of their birthdays. 
Now, after this birthday celebration, she also had plans to go back to her dorm room and wait until her parents were free. Her parents did not really live in the area and they had come down to visit her and they had a scheduled meeting time to see each other. Now, I'm not sure what her morning entailed or really what happened leading up to, you know, that night. But I do know that that night she ended up at a bar with her friends to celebrate this birthday. They would spend quite a bit of time at this bar, drinking and having a good time. And Michelle was seen alive and happy. Now, somehow, Michelle would get separated from her friends that night. I am unsure, you guys, if it's because Michelle left the bar that night to walk home to meet her parents, or if they did innocently get separated from each other. Either way, Michelle would end up walking alone and would pull her phone out only to realize that it had died while she was at the bar with her friends. I say I am unsure as to whether Michelle left on her own or not, because there is a lot of conflicting stories online about what happened. Some people talk about how she was walking home to her dorm. Other people talk about how she was walking to her mother's house. Some people say separated. Some people say she left on her own. I do know, however, whichever case it might be, Michelle's phone was dead and Michelle wanted to get in contact with her friends to give them an update or to find out where they were at. Now, walking alone at night was very normal for the people that attended this university. They had a gate rule, which, from what I understood, meant that the gate closed at 2 a.m., which meant until that time, people were coming in and out of these gates, walking to and from their dorm rooms, walking around, visiting friends, just going in and out. Men and women, all adults, would walk the streets until about 2 a.m., and then they would all tend to come home before the gates would shut. And it wasn't uncommon for Michelle to be walking alone either. Michelle was like many of the other people that were attending this university, and she would leave late at night and come back and walk through the gate, and she never had any problems. She had probably done this so many times that it was not any different than the normal night except for the fact that Michelle's phone was dead. Michelle continued to walk, thinking about what to do next, and for some reason, like I said, she decided she needed to contact her friends and give them an update, but she could not do that with her dead phone. So she would walk until she would spot a man that looked fairly approachable that was located in front of a jewelry store. She would walk up to this man and ask if she could borrow his phone and that hers was dead. He happily obliged and handed his phone over to Michelle. Now, I also want you guys to remember that this happened very, very, very late at night or very, very early in the mornings. So even though there was people walking up and down these streets, it was not like it was a busy street corner. This jewelry store wasn't open. There was not a ton of people around when this encounter happened. But this encounter was caught on security footage, and that's how we know that Michelle was alive and she had contact with this man and used his phone. The encounter, when reviewed over security footage, looked very innocent. It looked like a kind man happily handing his phone over to a woman in need, and she would use his phone, hand it back to him, and then they would walk off screen. Now, Michelle would punch in one of her best friend's phone numbers. This was a male, and she would give him a call. This man's name was Tommy Ling, who was also 21 years old and was attending the college with her. 
according to phone stamps, this call would happen at 2.34 a.m. Now, Tommy and Michelle, like I said, were best friends. They had grown up together and they were very, very close. And after being questioned about this phone call, this lifelong friend would inform the authorities that this did not raise any red flags. It wasn't a long phone call. It was short, sweet, and to the point. And Michelle sounded completely calm and normal over the phone and didn't say anything to make him worry or have any weird sounds in her voice that would raise any red flags. Now, if any of you have a best friend, you know exactly what he's talking about. I know that if my friend were to call me right now, my very best friend, Ray, and she were to say weird things to me or her voice sounded different, I can always tell when something is wrong. On top of that, me and Ray have some safe words that we've come up with as friends, where if we call each other and say them in these certain sentences, we immediately know the other one needs help but cannot say it for some reason or another. So even to a lifelong friend, Michelle wasn't in danger, at least not at this moment. She hung up on the phone with him and he just went back to partying at this bar with the other friends. Now, like I said earlier, there was multiple articles that said slightly different things. In some of these articles, I read that she informed her friend Tommy that she was going back to her dorm. In other articles, I read that she asked Tommy where he was at so she could meet him. I'm not sure exactly what happened on that phone call, and that is because I have a lot of conflicting stories. Either way, security cameras caught this entire encounter, and the phone call and Tommy's phone caught the caller ID and the number that she was calling from. They could confirm that Michelle was alive and happy when she called Tommy, and this was the last official sighting of Michelle, as she walked off camera with a man who she did not know and whose phone she had just borrowed. What happened next is unknown. We can only speculate. But what I do know is that Michelle never met back up with her friends. And she never met or called her parents when they were supposed to meet. Because Michelle never showed up and nobody could find her, they would begin their own search. Tommy even pulled the number up of the man whose phone she used to call him and called him. This man answered, and Tommy would immediately be bombarding this man with questions. Where was Michelle? What happened? Where did they go? And this man didn't give Tommy anything. All he said was that he let Michelle borrow his phone, and then he walked her off, and they split, and he just watched her walk up a hill and disappear. He knew nothing about where she went, or really who she was, and he had no idea what happened to her next. When the family and friends could not find Michelle, they would turn to police. The police would block off the entire area that Michelle was last seen in and begin to search for her, hoping that they would find something of, you know, where she went or Michelle herself. But they got nothing. They could not find Michelle and they couldn't even find traces that she had been there before. Michelle was just gone. And then six days later, the authorities would receive a phone call. A couple of hikers called because they had stumbled across remains. 
near a swimming hole. The authorities would just run to the spot. They would surround it and begin pulling these human remains out from between two rocks. And they easily identified these remains as Michelle Gardner Quinn. Michelle's body, like I said, was shoved in between two smaller rocks with some leaves and twigs that were used half-heartedly to cover her. These two rocks were located on the top of a cliff, and this trail was often used to walk to the nearby swimming hole. Because it had been a few days since Michelle went missing, it was easy to identify her. She was still wearing the clothes that she went missing in, after all. Once they pulled Michelle out from between these rocks, they would send her off to get an autopsy done. And this autopsy would come back that Michelle had been strangled and sexually assaulted. And her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Once they found her remains and they tracked her steps back, they were able to easily identify the man that was found in the security footage. This man's name was Brian Rooney. They would go on to arrest Brian, but interestingly enough, they would arrest him on separate charges, not from the kidnap, rape, or murder of Michelle. Oftentimes, the authorities will do this because they find someone or they believe that somebody is responsible for, you know, something on a very large scale, but they cannot arrest them on the charges of murder without any hard proof. Once somebody is arrested, the authorities have 48 hours to prove that they had something to do with it, or they are forced to let the person go. They also don't like to not arrest the person who could be involved, because the person who could be involved once the body is found can easily run away, and they cannot stop them. If the authorities arrest somebody without any evidence, and cannot prove it in 48 hours, they have to let the person go and that person cannot be arrested on the same charges because that goes against the double jeopardy law. So most of the time when they believe somebody is responsible or has a part in something very large like a murder, they will find another reason to arrest them. This isn't normally hard as most people do something that is illegal. And Brian was no different they were able to arrest him on sexual assault and lewd conduct charges that happened with a child. Brian Rooney was not a stranger to run-ins with the law. Brian had been charged a couple of times with sexual assault, and now he had this new charge of sexual assault and lewd conduct with a child. At the time he was arrested, Brian was a construction worker, and he had three children as well. They did a little bit more digging, and they discovered that Brian was, indeed, the last person to see Michelle that night, and interestingly enough, a couple of days later, he was seen with notable cuts on his hands while he stopped in at a business. They would easily be able to arrest Brian on the charges of her murder as well, because they discovered some DNA on Michelle. Once they had this, the trial started. Michelle's mother would stand up and calmly tell the jury of her last goodbye to her daughter. She explained what it felt like to walk into the morgue, knowing that her dead daughter was probably somewhere in there. 
walking through room to room until they came into the one that held her daughter. Then she went on to explain in detail what her daughter looked like, all the way to the strangulation marks on her neck and her battered head from the blunt force trauma. She would also bring up to the jury that she had witnessed her daughter's soul leaving her body and how as her daughter left, she spoke to her one last time and she informed her mother that the man that had killed her had killed before. Brian, however, would never be looked at again for another murder or suspected of another murder. Then, they would bring up how they found traces of Brian's semen inside of Michelle, and this is how they knew that Brian sexually assaulted and murdered her. And this was the final blow. They could prove that Brian's DNA was inside of her, which meant he had to have sexually assaulted her. But Brian's lawyer said otherwise. His lawyer claimed that the semen that they found was so little inside of her that it had actually come from sloppy detective work. The lab that was analyzing the body of Michelle mistakenly found evidence in her by either putting it inside of her by accident or by having evidence on the instruments that they used in the first place. He also claimed that there had to be some sort of witness to abduction in order for them to attempt to charge Brian for kidnapping, and they had no proof that Brian murdered Michelle, because all they had was the semen, so if anything, that only proved that he sexually assaulted her, and if the lab messed up and put his DNA on or in Michelle, they couldn't even prove that. And they were lacking a witness, they were lacking everything else. And Brian continued to say that he was innocent. And then his lawyer slipped up and began to talk about the semen that was found inside of her. Because he would talk about this and the amount that was found, it would violate some sort of rule that they had in place. And they would seal the courtroom off to others and put a silence order on it. They would pick up this trial and they would move it somewhere else. And because of that, we don't have a lot of information on the rest of the trial because nobody was there to witness what happened. It is noted that Brian, however, looked right at Michelle's family and said, I am so sorry for what you are going through, but I am not the man responsible for this tragic event, and it saddens me to tell you that. And on October 25th, Brian was arrested and charged with aggravated homicide and the death of Michelle Gardner Quinn. He would be sentenced to life in prison. And if it was up to the family, they would have preferred him sentenced to death. But unfortunately, that is not a thing in their state. Somebody in the courtroom is noted to look directly at Brian and say this, quote unquote, as a criminal defense lawyer, I represent thousands of people. I've been on the bench for over 20 years. I've had thousands of people up here before me, and I'll tell you something. Of all of these thousands of people I've seen and I've represented, I can only think about half a dozen, or maybe a dozen, who were beyond redemption, for whom there was no hope. Normally, I say good luck, wish you well, but not in your case, Mr. Rooney. I'll leave you to the fate you so rightly deserve. Brian immediately fired his lawyer and attempted to get retried. 
He would claim that his trial was not a fair one and that his lawyer messed up. This would easily be thrown out and they would inform Brian that his trial was fair and that he still needed to serve the entire sentence. I know we talked a little fast through this episode, but I wanted to get it out there, you know, in one piece as I could so it didn't go weird for you tonight. I wanted to try to talk to you about Michelle Gardner Quinn before my son woke up. And her story is a heartbreaking story, one that still has so many questions and so little answers. Michelle Gardner Quinn is believed to have died on October 7th, 2006, by the hands of Brian Rooney. It was clear that Michelle was sexually assaulted, strangled, and then beaten in the head until she died, only to be dumped in the woods and left there. With a few things I have brought up, though, is it possible that Brian really had no involvement? Could he and the lawyer have been telling the truth and that he was innocent after all? Or do you think Brian Rooney is serving the sentence he deserves? There may be false or misleading information throughout this podcast. All facts have been researched to the best of my abilities, but accidents do happen. If this is a story you are interested in knowing more about, I highly recommend doing your own research. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.